Where's the New Testament again? Let's see. Just a second, I got to put on my glasses. That's something I didn't have when uh, Jim was at the Bible school, was glasses. It's proof of being old. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Anyone have it memorized? Anyone know this verse? It's a great verse. One you should tuck away. Here it is. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. That's our text. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you are a God of grace. We thank you for a Jesus who never ceases to surprise us. We pray that our brief reflection on this few words would be filled with grace, accompanied by your Spirit, to the end that we would understand Jesus a little better and love him a little more. We ask all of these things in his name. Amen. Well, first of all, thanks, Jim, for that over-the-top, highly exaggerated and unbelievable introduction. That's uh, your credibility. You just hit the reefs again, you know, after all these years. But uh, anyway, it's really great to be here with you. I've uh, always felt most at home in a setting like this with folks who are young and studying the Scriptures and anticipating how God may want to use them in their future by virtue of this academic moment in your lives. I'm 67 years old. That makes me, I think, the oldest person in the room. I don't know if anyone wants to debate me on that or not. But that's officially old. You know, I'm, I have enough detachment in these matters to know that I'm entering the last chapter. You know, I don't know how long it'll be. My mind's already going. I can tell. It's... You are, on the other hand, for the most part, as I kind of survey the room, at the other end, kind of opening the first pages of your first chapter of what may be, for some of you, professional ministry. You may be involved in various ways that uh, you can't even anticipate at the moment, but who knows what God may do with any of you as these chapters begin to write themselves. I was doing a little mental arithmetic and realized that 67 years old, I've probably spent just shy of 50 of those 67 years involved in some kind of ministry for which I was paid. That is, some kind of professional, usually educational, Christian ministry. When I was in college, still 19 years old, I got a job as a youth director in a church, and I was an educator. I was uh, way back then on the radio. I worked in Christian broadcasting. I actually had an on-the-air program called Take 15. You've never heard of it, never made the big time, but uh, it was an educational program. I bluffed my way into a little Bible school called Inland Empire School of the Bible. That's where I met Jim. I don't know how I got that job, but my job was to educate. And that's what I did. I practiced law for a few years, about 20 years. But even then, I was teaching at uh, adjunct faculty at Whitworth University, Bible, history, theology. The last 10 years, uh, working at a classical uh, school in Spokane, teaching Bible. I don't run all this pedigree by you to impress you, but simply to say I've been around the block 
and I've seen it. Uh, this, this Christian ministry thing, I've seen it up close and personal for many years. And so I think to myself, okay, I'm a guy sort of entering the last chapter. If I wanted to leave one thought in the minds of people who are, for the most part, just starting off in the first chapter, what have I learned? Could I reduce it to one sentence, one strong suggestion, so that if you forget anything else I talk about, I hope this will stick in your minds. And I guess I'd put it in these words. Be cautious that you never become too familiar with Jesus. Never labor under the delusion that you know him as well as you think you do, because you don't. Jesus uh, headed for Nazareth with his disciples. You know the story. He shows up in town. The people who knew him best, the people who were most familiar with him, knew him so well they didn't have a clue. They had so much information about him, they had no idea who he was. They were overly familiar with him. And so when Jesus got up to start talking in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, they said, who is this? Who does this guy think he is? Isn't this the carpenter? The Greek word actually allows for a broader sense. It could be something like, isn't this the handyman? Isn't this the guy that put a couple of tiles on the roof of my house four years ago? Isn't this the guy that fixed the broken leg on my coffee table, you know, 18 months? Who does this guy think he is? They knew him so well, they didn't know him at all. Jesus goes to his hometown. They knew him and they didn't. You're engaged in studying the Bible, studying Jesus, studying the history of the church, studying related matters, and you will easily fall into the trap of thinking you know him pretty well. Whenever you start thinking that way, watch out. This is actually one of two stories in Mark's Gospel in which the family of Jesus plays prominently. The other story comes earlier. It's back in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 21, we have the story in which Jesus is in Capernaum, and the crowds are pressing him so much, we hear, that he's not even having the opportunity to eat. And his family comes from, uh, from Nazareth, 20 miles about from Nazareth to Capernaum. They come and they want to apparently rescue Jesus because they're worried about what's happening to him with all of these crowds. And so Mark tells us in verse 21 that they came to take him by force. The Greek word krateo. They wanted to take him, kratesi, the infinitive. They wanted to take him by force. Read, put him in a straitjacket, haul him away, put him in a padded cell, and let him settle down a little bit for his own good. That's at least what they said. Why? 
because their stated rationale for wanting to do that, he is beside himself. That's what his family said. He's nuts. So the family of Jesus shows up. The people you would think know him best. Their assessment, the guy's lost his mind. We got to take him by force, get him out of town for his own good. You know. That's the beginning of what's called a Marcan sandwich. I love that. I guess it's because I love lunch, you know. But anyway, a Marcan sandwich. If you've studied Mark, you know that that is a literary device that Mark especially uses with some degree of creative genius. And it's a literary structure in which you have a premise and then later on a return to that premise and in the middle what's called the meat of the sandwich, which usually appears to be unrelated but actually explains the whole story. Okay. So the first piece of bread is the family shows up, wants to haul him away, he's nuts. The other piece of bread, they show up again. It's about 15, 20 verses later. They're outside. They want to see Jesus. The word trickles in through the crowd. Somebody says to Jesus, hey, your, your, your family's outside. Your mother, your sister, your brothers, they want to see you. And Jesus says something so remarkable. He might have even seen them off in the distance, out in the street, at the edges. He asks the question, who is my family? Who's my family? Who is my mother? Who's my sister? Who's my brother? And he looks at his disciples and he says, here's my mother. I'm telling you, the Blessed Virgin is outside in the street. And he says, here's my mother. Sorry, you Catholics in the room. Here's my brothers, here's my sisters. What a slap in the face. You ever thought about that? What if you were one of those family members and you've just been displaced by these disciples? And Jesus says, whoever does the will of God is my mother, my sister, my brothers. Those are two astonishing little pieces of data, aren't they, in the life of Christ? The meat of the sandwich is right in the middle. You read it at first, you think, what does that have to do with anything? It's the whole deal of Beelzebub. The family of Jesus had said, he's nuts. The Pharisees went one better and said, no, 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 he's not nuts. He's in league with the devil. He sold his soul to the devil. That's how come he can do all this stuff. Of course, Jesus dismisses that with that famous statement, a house divided against itself cannot stand. But the real heart of the matter comes later, verse 27, chapter 3, Mark. You cannot plunder the goods of a strong man unless you first bind the strong man. Then you can plunder his goods. Jesus came to plunder the goods of a thug who had taken control of this 
world in the Garden of Eden, and now Jesus came back to take back what was His. But you don't do that until you put the strong man in some duct tape. Then you can plunder his goods. That's why Jesus came. Now, I want you to notice the family of Jesus came and they wanted to bind him. But Jesus didn't come to be bound, but to bind. He didn't come to be bound by his family or by anybody who's trying to protect him from bad opinions people might have about him in this world. You know, this world is filled with, and history has been filled with people trying to make Jesus a little nicer, trying to make him a little more palatable, a little more acceptable, a little more genteel, a little more responsible, not so over the top, not so outrageous, not so ridiculous in his claims. I mean, for goodness sake, anyone that would said, you know, I and the Father am one, he that has seen me has seen God before Abraham was, ego Amy, Yahweh, I am, give me a break. Who does this guy think he is? God? And people looked at that and said, we got to put this guy in a straitjacket. We got to settle this guy down before he really gets into trouble. And the family comes on a rescue mission to get Jesus away from the peril he's creating for himself. Well, Jesus didn't come to be made palatable. He didn't come to this world to be made polite, acceptable, gentle. He came to tie up a strong man. He came to push back the gates of hell. And anybody that stands in his way, including his own family, had better get out of the way. And they'll be replaced by people who are willing to join him in that very perilous task. See. So that was Jesus' first encounter with his family. And now, sometime later, Jesus returns the favor. His family came from Capernaum, or I'm sorry, came from Nazareth to Capernaum. Now Jesus goes from Capernaum back to Nazareth. And who does he have with him? His disciples, his family. Nazareth, a town of about 500 people in the first century. Don't you think when Jesus came to town with 12 burly guys behind him that that made a bit of a sensation? They knew who he was. They knew these people who were with him. His own family knew that they had been jilted by this one that they thought they understood. And Jesus gets up in the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he confirms every suspicion they had. Delusions of grandeur on steroids. Reads this great messianic text, Isaiah chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to do all these amazing things. And then Jesus says, this day, this has been pleurotai. This has been fully realized in your presence. They couldn't believe it. Isn't this the handyman? They knew him so well. Well, you're not likely to confuse Jesus with a handyman. But you are in at risk 
of doing something that happens to people sometimes when they go to Bible school, they go to seminary, they go to other structured environments in which the study of Jesus becomes part of the curriculum. And that is you can fall into the trap of thinking, okay, I got that one. I aced the quiz. I got it figured out. Let's move on to some other things. Be cautious. The Gospel of Mark especially, but in many ways the whole New Testament, constantly surprises us with unexpected moves on the part of Jesus that explode off the page. And He will do that in your life. He will do that in your career. You think about when Jesus, just a chapter earlier, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, a storm blows up. It's a powerful storm scaring even these fishermen. They're about to go under. They look in the back of the boat. Where's Jesus? He's asleep on a pillow. Do you know there's only one word, strictly speaking, one time, strictly speaking, in the Bible when the word pillow is used? It's inferred a couple of times, but the only time it's actually used is in Mark chapter 4, the last story, when Jesus is said to be sleeping on one. Isn't that lovely? Middle of the storm, they're about to go under, and Jesus is asleep on a pillow. Thank you very much. (laughs) There will be times in your career when it will seem to you that Jesus is taking a snooze on a pillow, and it will invariably be when you are in a storm. The disciples can't believe it. They go back, they rip that pillow out from under. What's the matter with you? Wake up. You've got to help us bail water. We're going under. You know, what's going to happen to your messiahship if we don't survive this storm? You know. I don't know if Jesus was a little grumpy, having been wakened out of his slumbers. I don't know. He stood up, he yawned, stretched. Storm is just beating on the boat. He turns around, he looks at the storm, and he says two words. Mark gives us the two Greek words. Siopa, pefimoso. Siopa. It's a Greek word that means quiet. But it's not an adjective, as in describing a quiet place. It is, in fact, an imperative verb, as in quiet down. It's the kind of thing teachers will sometimes say in a classroom, you know, quiet down. Pephimoso is even better. It's on a Greek root that means muzzle. So it would be something like muzzle it. Only the contemporary sort of colloquialism would be a little bit more harsh. You're all thinking it, aren't you? Jesus stood up in the back of the boat turned around, looked at the storm, addressed it as if it were a two-year-old child, quiet down, shut up. Bam. It's quiet. You could see the moon glistening off the surface of the water. you think the disciples would be relieved. Mark tells us they were terrified. They were more fearful in the peace that followed 
than they were in the storm. They'd prefer to trade places with themselves in the storm than face this man of whom they asked the question, what kind of guy is this? I hope in your ministry, I hope that whatever you do, Sunday school teacher, pastor, missionary, homeschooler, whatever, I hope you roll out of bed every morning with a certain degree of awestruck, awestruck wonder in your mind and on your lips as you ask the question, what kind of guy is this that I worship? In what ways is he going to today refuse to get into my straitjacket, refuse to get into my box, refuse to get into my polite place where I want him to be exactly what I want him to be so that I can be respected? I hope you will have the courage to say he is who he is and he will surprise you every day of the week. What kind of guy is this that all of human history turns on? All human history hangs on this unique man that we call Jesus. So please, whatever you do, never ever become too familiar with him. Amen.